The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. A quarter century ago today, September 27th, 1996, the Battle of Kabul ended in a Taliban victory and the proclamation of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Wow. 25 years ago. Is it really? It, it, it feels like just last month. The German election uh, has ended uncertainly. I could give you all the details, but in essence, the two main parties got about 200 seats apiece. The two main junior parties got about 100 seats apiece. Uh, each of the two main parties, each of the main parties, uh, would need two coalition partners to govern, which greatly favours the SPD, the lefties. In fifth place... A few seats down from last time, but still on the heels of the two main junior parties is the non-main junior party, non-mainstream junior party, AFD, Alternative for Deutschland. You know, those fellas, but nobody wants them in the coalition, heaven forbid. So that, again, greatly favours some sort of left-led government coming out on top. If you're thinking, uh, well, when they start counting the boxes of votes delivered in the small hours in unmarked vans, things could all change. Uh, they uh, they don't uh, have that in Germany. The Germans come by their crap governments relatively honestly, unlike the United States. Almost a year after the American presidential election, the Arizona audit has found 57,734 ballots with, quote, issues. Joe Biden purportedly won the state with 10,457 votes, so the 57,734 dodgy ballots are five times his margin of so-called victory. The Arizona Senate chairman has referred the matter to the Arizona Attorney General for possible investigation. Here we go, folks, uh, the Arizona version of the Durham report, which may drag things out until after the 2022 midterms. As we know, last year's conspiracy theory eventually becomes this week's New York Times story. You know all those crazy nutso types who used to talk about the FBI being behind the January 6th insurrection? Headline from the New York Times from June 18th, quote, No, there is no evidence that the FBI organized the January 6th Capitol riot, unquote. Headline from the New York Times. This weekend, quote, among those who marched into the Capitol on January the 6th, an FBI informant. He was posing as a proud boy. Why is the New York Times running this story now? Well, some bad stuff about the FBI is about to go public. And their chums at the Times are doing the old modified limited hangout of... Uh, of, of, of releasing this 
a partial concession of bad stuff now so that when the really bad stuff hits the fan, the media can say, oh, yeah, well, this is uh, all old news. We, uh, we ran that story in late September. If you're a so-called conservative talk show host and you're still doing all the pom-pom girl stuff about how I know these FBI agents, there's salt of the earth, there's just a few bad apples at the top, well, you're a rube and a patsy. They're rotten and corrupt from top to toe, the FBI is beyond reform, and you should demand of all political candidates that they're committed to dismantling it and putting something else, less rotten, less corrupt, which means they have less powers... Uh, and they are not global in the reach of their powers, uh, putting something less stinkingly rotten and corrupt in its place. As I've said for years, our society is bifurcating. The more lawless you are, the more the law and the state will encourage you in your lawlessness. See those unvaccinated Haitians. The US Secretary of so-called Homeland Security has just loosed all over the homeland. He's conceded that he's let in more than 12,000 Haitians, which means the actual number he's let in is any bit 30,000, 70,000, who, who knows. Uh, but uh, at a time when a Canadian uh, cannot drive with his paperwork, cannot drive into the United States. Uh, Haitians with no paperwork, no vaccine passports, no non-vaccine passports can just be loosed and dispersed all over the homeland. Uh, homeland security is beginning uh, to take on the names of one of those Orwell agencies that you'll have heard in uh, my Adaptation of 1984 uh, from earlier this year, the Ministry of Truth, the Ministry of Homeland Security. Uh, so that's if you're lawless. If you're lawless, the Secretary of so-called Homeland Security encourages and licenses your lawlessness. Meanwhile, the more law-abiding you are, the more laws and indeed dictates, numerous and contradictory, will be imposed on you. And if you object, you'll be punched and kicked and rubber-bulleted by incompetent and undisciplined coppers, as in Melbourne. Uh, have you seen all the network news reports about Afghan sex crimes in America? No? Oh, you do surprise me. Well, the Brazilians of Afghan translators, uh, translating is to Afghans as content farming is to Macedonians. Uh, it's about 87% of the Afghan economy. It's what uh, Pushtuns call the translation industrial complex. They got the idea from the Pentagon. Well, the Brazilians of Afghan translators have barely touched down and they're already touching you up. So we have a brand new feature for you. The Mark Stein Show presents your Afghan translator of the week. Standing on the corner watching all the girls go by. I'm standing on the corner Keeping all the girls I throat Brother, you don't know A nicer occupation Much better than Jalalabad I'm standing on the corner Picking out my necks Picking out my necks Picking out my necks Child pride I'm sorry I don't do rhymes Mullah Omar says rhymes are for infidels Saturday I was so broke Hadn't got a goat, and that's no joke. 
So I cruise on down to Gaza Inc. where I hover C-17 and I survey the horror awaiting when I land. Because I'm standing on the corner watching all the boys go by. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I meant to say I'm standing on the corner watching all the girls go by. Brother, if you'd like a babe out of her burker, get on a plane. Come to Fort Bragg, and you'll be standing on the corner, dragging all the girls, dragging all the girls, dragging all the girls into the shrubbery. Look, I am an official accredited translator. You want to let me say I go jiggy jig on top of you in cash now? Come with me now. Hmm, uh, we may have to get Hakim in to do a second take on that one. As is to be expected from the laughingstock superpower, the small number of actual U.S. translators in Afghanistan all appear uh, to have been left behind to receive uh, for the rest of their lives spam texts from the State Department telling them to take three copies of the pink form to the nearest U.S. consulate, which is, uh, where would that be, Qatar or Lahore? Helsinki. Uh, And instead, America has imported legions of translators who can't speak English, uh, so that when they uh, landed in Virginia, an emergency appeal had to be issued for people willing to serve as translators for the translators. Uh, Part of the confusion arises from the fact that the word translator is, in fact, Pashto for sex fiend. It's not yet a month since America skedaddled out of Hamid Karzai International, but it was a long flight for all our plucky translators, so lots of nominees uh, for your Afghan Translator of the Week at Fort McCoy, Wisconsin. Barula Nuri, 20, is charged with attempting to rape a child and with three counts of engaging in a sexual act with another child with one count alleging the use of force. One of the boys is 14, the other is 12. This is the traditional Pushtun Bachabazi. And if there are no dancing boys of Kandahar, one has to make do with the dancing boys of Wisconsin. Also at Fort McCoy, Mohammed Haroon Imad, 32, is charged with raping, strangling and suffocating his alleged bride. At Fort Bliss, which is so big it straddles Texas and New Mexico, because that's the kind of shock and awe that really shocks and awes the likes of the Taliban. But this particular incident occurred on the New Mexico side. A female service member, as they say, was sexually assaulted by a gang of Afghans, bringing the traditional turn on, the take your turn, to the American barracks. This is how unshocked and unawed the Afghans are. They've only just got here and they're gang raping on US military bases. But I think for this first Afghan translator of the week, we should pick Gaydar Haydari. Uh, He has terrific gaydar, as many Afghans do. As you'll know if you're a gay bar owner in Kabul getting his first visit from the Mutaween. Gaydar Haydari is a convicted rapist. No, 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 not in Afghanistan. He's a convicted rapist in America. He was living in Ada County, Idaho. He raped someone, was tried, convicted and jailed, and eventually deported to Afghanistan in 2017. But 
He's back. Hallelujah. Somehow he managed to get to Kabul airport and onto one of those heartwarming humanitarian flights out. But don't worry, as we've been assured by four-star bird-brain ribbon fetishist General Thoroughly Modern Millie and his Defence Secretary Darth Plexivisor, all these refugees are thoroughly vetted in Doha or in Ramstein before they're permitted to fly on to America. So Gaydar Haidari sailed through the security checks, even though he's not in the Afghan criminal background system, which one gathers is uh, prone to a few computer issues these days. He's in the American database. We're not just flying in tomorrow's rapists, we're also flying back yesterday's rapists. So congratulations to our first Afghan translator of the week on the Mark Stein Show. Thoroughly vetted, thoroughly convicted, thoroughly deported rapist Gaydar Haidari. Currently back in America in Bowling Green, Virginia. I've mentioned many times the charming lady I met in Stavanger, Norway, and her class in training Afghan refugees into forswearing the rape and assault and instead trying a box of chocolates, a corsage, and a little Johnny Mathis on the hi-fi. Uh, I talked to a lot of uh, Stavanger Afghans about their sexual frustrations in the depraved West. Perhaps it's too much to expect the world's most incompetent superpower to pay any attention to what's happened in the last five years in Norway or Germany or Austria. But even the Pentagon can't occupy a country for 20 years and not know the first thing about it, can it? So at a certain level, they have to know what they're doing and what they're doing to you. Load up, load up, load up, we're all the bullets. Load up, load up, load up, we're all the bullets. I love to hear those convicts scream. It's a shame these slugs ain't free. The Australian state has loaded up with rubber bullets and they're not shy about unleashing them on recalcitrant members of the populace. Here is the cheery sound of weekend policing in the lucky country. That's just the background noise, the usual scene of a gaggle of constables in the full Robocop truncheoning and kicking a couple of... Uh, well, what's the word? Australians uh, used to be quite keen on this word in in contrast uh, to the idea of being British subjects. What was that word again? Oh, yes, citizens. Citizens. Yeah, gaggle of constables truncheoning and kicking a couple of citizens to the sidewalk. Uh, my old chum, Miranda Devine, says uh, this isn't an Australian phenomenon. It's a victim. Victorian phenomenon. She says the Victoria Police have the most woke recruiting standards, so they've wound up with weak, weedy, effete ninny coppers who naturally enjoy using their superior numbers and weaponry to pound the crap out of people. And that's true. That's true. Uh, when you look at the Twitter footage of out-of-control officers throwing punches and kicking elderly persons in the ribs, uh, you see a constabulary that is ill-disciplined and poorly trained. But they're getting a lot of support at the national level. Here is David Littleproud, Australia's Agriculture Minister and Deputy Leader of the Junior Party in what's supposed to be a right-of-centre government, calling for indefinite 
detention of protesters. We're seeing civil unrest erupt as well. The most locked down city in the world in Melbourne, seeing that sadly over recent days. What's your reaction to what you've seen out of Melbourne? And do you fear that we'll see more unrest if governments don't articulate plans and stick to them? Well, that small element are society scum. And quite frankly, they should be forced into isolation at Her Majesty's pleasure. Uh, police do not need that. And, and even innocent bystanders being caught up in that, that, that is abhorrent. That is not Australian. Those people do not deserve to live in this society freely. They should be put away in jail, in isolation, to reflect at Her Majesty's pleasure to make sure that when they are let out, they don't do it again. I sympathise with those men and women in blue that surely should not have to go through this. I, I, I actually support anyone that wants to protest, but once they step over that line, they don't deserve to be walking free in society and the police shouldn't have to put up with that rubbish. This scum should be put away. For our non-monarchical listeners, being held at Her Majesty's pleasure means being detained indefinitely, i.e. no sentence... Uh, You can't make scratch marks on the jail cell wall counting down your days to liberty. You're being held indefinitely, a bit like America's political prisoners of January the 6th, who, thanks to America's stinkingly corrupt judiciary, are being detained at Her Majesty Queen Nancy Pelosi's pleasure. It's extraordinary that that's happening in Washington. It's extraordinary that Australian cabinet ministers are entertaining the thought down under. Something is underway here, folks, under cover of COVID, and it's happening very fast. Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. The man who would be Mongol, Shackleton heads to the Antarctic and the Flickers. And the poet who proffered an ill-advised coconut. It's September 1921. A hundred years from today. Your World News Update. The messy aftermath of the Great War continues. The Soviet Union is going to war over the territory of Bessarabia. If you can't keep up with all these disputed territories, it's to the northwest of the Black Sea, between the Nistar River in the east and the Prut River in the west. Previously, Bessarabia was part of the Russian Empire, and following the Bolshevik Revolution, briefly the Moldavian Democratic Republic. With the support of the Allied Supreme Council, it is currently part of the Kingdom of Romania. The Bolsheviks have declared war on Romania in order to get Bessarabia back. The Principality of Albania has asked the League of Nations Assembly to intervene to stop the violation of its borders by the Kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes. Following his successful military campaign against the Spanish army and the Moroccan sultan, the Berber rebel leader Abd el Krim has proclaimed the Republic of the Reef with Ajdir as its capital city. After three weeks, the Battle of Sakaraya has ended with a Greek surrender to the Turks. The dead from the battle number about 4,000 on each side. The Empire of Japan has published the diplomatic note it sent to Peking, demanding restoration of Japanese control of the Shandong Peninsula.
Baron Roman von Ungern Sternberg was born in Austria to a German Baltic family, but believed himself to be a descendant of Genghis Khan and dreamed all his life of restoring the Mongol Empire. Those dreams have ended. Last month, he was captured by the Soviet army, and now, after the usual Bolshevik show trial, he has been executed by firing squad in Novonikolaivsk. Baron Ungern, known to Mongols as the Mad Baron or the Bloody Baron, was 35. The nominal monarch of Mongolia, the Bogd Khan, has ordered memorial services throughout the nation's Buddhist temples. The League of Nations has confirmed the appointment of 11 judges to the first so-called World Court, the Permanent Court of International Justice. Each justice from 11 different nations will serve a nine-year term. In Munich, the so-called Führer of the National Socialist German Workers' Party, Herr Adolf Hitler, has made a name for himself as a charismatic speaker, but there were no clever speeches when he decided to disrupt a meeting of der Bayernbund, the Bavarian League and wound up getting into a fight with secessionist leader Otto Ballerstedt. Herr Hitler now faces a jail term for assault. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. It's a long way to Tipperary to the sweetest girl I know. Goodbye Piccadilly. Tipperary, sure, but it's goodbye Piccadilly, farewell Leicester Square, as far as Irish Republicans are concerned. Their revolutionary parliament, the Dial Aaron, had agreed to send to a special meeting in Inverness with His Majesty's government, five delegates, including the so-called Irish Republic, so-called Foreign Minister Arthur Griffith, and Finance Minister Michael Collins. But it refused to drop its demand for complete independence outside the British Empire, and so Prime Minister Lloyd George has cancelled the conference. In the United States, Brigadier General Billy Mitchell has recommended that the Department of War and the Department of the Navy be consolidated into a single single department of national defense comprising the army, navy and a proposed US air service. Serana Shackleton is not just a great explorer but a great enthusiast of new sound and visual technology. Many will recall the famous account he made for Edison Phonographic of his South Polar expedition. Under my command, are as follows. We reached a point within 97 geographical miles of the South Pole. The only thing that stopped us from reaching the actual point was the lack of 50 pounds of food. That was after the event, of course. Now Sir Ernest is said to have used Harry Grindle Matthews' new sound-on-film process to make a farewell message in sound and vision just one day before sailing from St Catherine Docks 
for Antarctica. The British Mandate of Palestine has signed an agreement to provide for electric power infrastructure through most of the mandatory territory. The government has granted Pincus Rutenberg's Jaffa Electric Company the exclusive right to a 70-year concession to generate hydroelectric power from the Yarkon River. More high-voltage news in a demonstration at Pittsfield, Massachusetts. The General Electric Company has, for the first time, transmitted one million votes of electricity. The first radio station in New England has begun broadcasting. Financed by Westinghouse Electric Company, WBZ will operate from Springfield, Massachusetts and transmit on the 300 metres wavelength. In other radio news, KDKA, the Pittsburgh station, has partnered with the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette to create what it calls the first news department in the history of wireless broadcasting. In sports news, the New Zealand All Blacks and the South African Springboks have tied the final test of their very first rugby union series played in appalling conditions in Wellington, New Zealand. The All Blacks won the first test in Dunedin. The Springboks took the second in Auckland. So the series has ended in a 1-1 draw, but the excitement generated suggests we have witnessed the birth of one of the world's great sporting rivalries. In Norway, the Dovre Line rail link between Oslo and Trondheim has opened and suffered its first fatal accident. The inaugural train was returning from the celebrations in Trondheim when it collided with another train on the Storen line. It is the first major rail accident in Norwegian history, and six prominent persons are dead, including a director of the railway company, the director of the National Map Agency, and a former Minister of Defence. The king, who had opened the railway but decided to stay in Trondheim a few days and so was not on the return trip, has visited the scene of the tragedy. 75 coal miners are dead after a series of underground explosions in a mine at Mount Mulligan, Queensland. Admiral of the fleet, the Marquess of Milford Haven, is still perhaps better known as His Serene Highness Prince Louis of Battenberg, his name and style until 1917, when the king ordered all members of the royal family to relinquish their German titles. Anti-German sentiment is said to have forced his premature retirement during the late war as Britain's first sea lord. The collapse of the Mark rendered his German properties worthless and the Bolsheviks cost him his extensive investments in Russia, as well as the lives of two of his sisters-in-law, members of the Tsarist family whom the blood-soaked Reds murdered. Earlier this year, Lord Milford Haven was in Jerusalem for the burial of one of those ladies, Grand Duchess Elizabeth. The former first sea lord is dead of heart failure following influenza at the age of 67. Sindhu Nadiyin Misal Nilavi Nile Seranana Tilam Bengaludani Subramanya Bharati spoke and wrote over a dozen languages, but Tamil he prized above all. 
His songs and poems in that language are beloved throughout India by the people, if not so much by the government, for whom his fiery nationalism could cause problems. Earlier this year, Mr. Bharati was feeding a coconut to an elephant he had befriended called Lavanya. The elephant got agitated and attacked him, and although he survived, the poet's health never really recovered. Subramania Bharati is dead at 38. And that's the way of the world, September 1921. This is Mark Stein. We have a worldwide number one hit for you on Stein's Song of the Week this week. It was composed by a German, although a Croat, a Lebanese, Armenian and a Brazilian Frenchman all claim to have written it. And despite all that Franco-Lebanese-Armenian-Brazilian-Croatian-Teutonic tussling, it was a blockbuster for the biggest American star of them all. He loathed it, by the way, but you'll love it. It's all coming up on Stein's Song of the Week, Sunday afternoon at 5.30. And 5.30pm London time is half past midday North American Eastern on Sunday. If you missed our last show, you missed a corker, but it will be repeated this Thursday on 7Aid Radio at 9pm UK time, which is Thursday afternoon here in the Americas. Mark's mailbox is on the air. Charles, who's been a Stein Clubber for a year or so now, writes from North Carolina. And this isn't a bigger topic than just between uh, yours truly and a, what is it, a Carolinian. Uh, So... I invite uh, all our listeners and uh, readers to send me your thoughts on this one. Maybe we'll publish a little symposium on it. We'll certainly pick it up in the weeks ahead because I think it's quite interesting. Uh, Anyway, our Carolinian pal says, Mark Stein uses the word conservative a lot. There are many types of conservatives. The conservative au naturel. We have always done it this way. The textual conservative. James Madison wrote. The biblical conservative. It was good enough for Moses. The nostalgic conservative. I remember when. The loyal conservative. My friends all agree. The Chesterton conservative. Maybe the old ones knew something. The reflexive conservative. You people are nuts, etc. I will not peg Mark Stein, but I can imagine him with a bracelet that reads, what would Edward VII do? Uh, That would be for libertine conservatives, I think. And I'm not a believer in absolute monarchy. I'm a believer in constitutional monarchy. So I'd be more likely to have a bracelet that reads, what would the Marquess of Salisbury do? Who... Uh, if I recall correctly, was uh, King Edward VII's first prime minister. I, in fact, talked up uh, the Marquess of Salisbury when I was on. I was on stage in. Mi- I don't know why I did this. Uh, the 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 theatre was full of red-blooded conservatives, the Powerline Gang and Michelle Bachman and all that kind of thing. I was on stage in Minneapolis 
And uh, someone asked a question who, about to name the Conservatives I admire. And so I said, well, actually, the Marquis of Salisbury and uh, our amused interlocutor said, oh, we get that all the time here. And then I, oh, oh wait a minute, what am I doing? I'm in America. So I, I put in a word for Calvin Coolidge. Um, but but that, that actually, by the way, that's the point about Conservatives. Uh, conservative societies can be conservative in their own way. And uh, so if you happen to be in uh, Her Majesty's dominions, you're a monarchist because when it is not necessary to change, it is necessary not to change. That's the most conservative uh, that's the core conservative position. When it is not necessary to change, it is necessary not to change. So if you're going all hyper-rationalist and saying, well, there's uh, no reason why uh, an uh, island in the Caribbean uh, should be ruled by some little old lady uh, thousands of miles away in Windsor Castle, uh, hyper-rationalism is the antithesis of conservatism. Uh, and that actually gets to something like the textual conservative it's interesting. The, the most important, and I'll just throw this out because I'd like to widen it, open it up to people. Conservatism is a disposition, and that disposition can be different according to whether you are in Canada or the United States or according to whether you are in Estonia or you are in Sweden. But conservatism, above all, I think, is a disposition, which is why, to go back to the textual conservative James Madison wrote, when people lose that disposition, uh, textual conservatism, as our correspondent puts it, the Constitution, in effect, is, is, a, is a rationalist document, but rationalist documents do not ultimately have purchase on people's dispositions, which is why it's becoming a fetish club in the United States right now, because half the population, and much more than that when you look at people under 50 or whatever, uh, have lost the disposition of constitutional affection. So you need more than that for a, uh, for a conservative society. And, th and, th and this is the, the critical aspect of the challenge before us than when ultimately cultural conservatism is the most powerful thing. So we are in the bizarre situation, for example, right now, where the freest countries in the Western world are the ones that we think of as sort of uh, socialist basket case countries, uh, which is to say the Nordic countries generally, Denmark, uh, Sweden, Norway. And all the, the only reason they're like that is because Swedes said when the COVID started, however this thing shakes out, we want to live or die as Swedes. And that ultimately is, I would say, a culturally conservative position. The willingness of conservatives to inflict what the governments of Alberta, the governments of uh, Victoria, the government of Massachusetts have inflicted, so-called conservative governors have inflicted on their people is deeply unconservative. But these terms now, as I said, my core thing is cultural conservatism. Uh, and that, of course, is what is 
precisely being denied citizens of all Western nations, uh, whether one is talking about uh, the um, Muti Merkel's uh, admission of all those strapping young Mohammedans a couple of years back, or whether one is talking about the images uh, at the southern border at uh, under that Del Rio bridge, is that you're being denied the consolations of culture, which is the, the right, in effect, to live in a society that has not been wholly transformed from that in which you were uh, born and uh, which you grew up in and which you love. And so when you take away culture, there is no conservatism. Homo economicus, uh, economic conservatism, uh, leads to the ridiculous sights we see at the southern border, that apparently uh, on economic grounds we need to admit uh, large numbers of people wholly alien to the mores of our societies. So the core conservatism for me is cultural. But I thank you for raising... I thank our Carolinian correspondent for raising that most interesting point, and I would like to widen it out and invite uh, other people listening uh, to weigh in and make their own contributions on that, and we will, uh, we will widen it out in the weeks ahead. Mark Stein's Last Call. I don't suppose many listeners will know the name Barbara Moore, but you have almost certainly heard her voice. She was a backing singer with the uh, legendary British backing group The Ladybirds, in which capacity she sang with everyone from Jimi Hendrix to Benny Hill. But even if you've never bought a single piece of music, chances are you've heard her voice. On the intro theme for Roger Moore in The Saint, which we were talking about for our Stein Online Saturday screen date just a couple of days ago, or for the Deer Hunter or Raiders of the Lost Ark. Aside from being a backing singer, she was a talented arranger and composer. She wrote the theme for the BBC's Terry Wogan show, which Wogan used for over four decades. My ever-so-slight connection with Barbara is that if you read the fine print on the CD sleeves of my Cat album and my Christmas album, you'll see that for half my life I've been in and out of Angel Studios in London, which, uh, like so many things, these last two years is now permanently closed. But Angel was owned by DeWolf Music, which provides library music for television and commercials and whatnot. And Barbara Moore was a house composer and arranger for DeWolf Music. And Barbara was mildly flattered uh, when I told her that when I wanted to illustrate the difference a great arrangement makes, uh, I didn't use Nelson Riddle or Billy May, I used Barbara Moore. About 60 years ago, a man called Brian Fay wrote and recorded a composition called At the Sign of the Swingin' Symbol. the very greatest of all disc jockeys, Alan Fluff Freeman from Melbourne, Victoria. 
He was born back in the old days in Melbourne when they had freedom of movement. You young uns probably can't remember back that far. But in those days in Melbourne, you were free to go hither and yon, sally forth and sally back. And uh, one day... Uh, just about kind of two-thirds of a century back, Alan Freeman got on a boat to England and wound up on the BBC presenting Pick of the Pops, which he was to do on and off for the next four decades. Hi there, pop pickers. It's me again, and Sunday at four means Pick of the Pops. Well, there are top 20 stop press reports. We've lost the Beatles' I Want to Hold Your Hand, Frank Ifield and Gene Pitney's Tulsa. Down come the Rolling Stones EP from 19 to 20. Dave Clark 5's Glad All Over from 11 to 17. Up goes Rick Nelson from 17 to 16 and Eden Kane from 20 to 13. While the Beatles' All My Loving EP stays put at number 14, the Ronettes stay put at number 12. Alan was very attentive to theme songs and he liked Brian Fay's At the Sign of the Swinging Symbol and he thought it was perfect for counting down the hit parade. Bobby Darren sitting there patiently at number two and below comes Elvis full of running and above a still firmly cemented Frank Ifield. Well, next Sunday at four in Pick of the Pops. Next Sunday. All right? Right. Stay bright. Pick of the Pops, introduced by Alan Freeman, is produced by Dennis Jones. At the end of the 60s, Alan Freeman and his producer decided that their theme tune could do with fluffing up a bit. So they asked Barbara Moore to do a new arrangement. Sometimes the composer doesn't know what he's got. Barbara described Brian Fay's version of his tune as a fat man waddling through a Turkish market, which is a good way of putting it. But for a piece called At the Sign of the Swing and Symbol, it didn't really swing. Barbara took the tune and let it rip, and Alan Freeman loved it. The number one's on 1FM, right? Not off. And the Pick of the Pops Top 20 for the year 1982. At number 20, if you can't stand the heat, Bob's Fizz, Santa Claus and the Christmas Tree there. At number 19, with Sing Along Santa. At number 18, Buffalo Girls from Malcolm McLaren and the World Famous Supreme Team. And at number 17... Let's get this straight from Crap and Roll and Dexie's Midnight Runners at number 16. We had Ultrabox and him at 15. Friends from Shalomar, Dion Warwick at number 14. All the love in the world and down at number 13. At number 12, Mirror Man from the Human League, Cliff Richard at number 11, and the one called Little Town. Right, down at number 10, Beat Surrender and Shopping from the Jam at number 9, Truly from Mr. Lionel Richie, Modern Romance at number 8, Best Years of Our Lives. New at number 7, A Witter's Tale from David Essex, Phil Collins at number 6, You Can't Hurry Love. At number 5, Our House from Madness, and down at number 4 was... Um 
to Club and Time, Clock of the Heart in the top three, Peace on Earth, Honiton Drummer Boy, David Bowie and Bing Crosby. Up at number two, the shaky EP and a little blue Christmas, right? And at number one in 1982 in Pick of the Pops, we had Renee, we had Renato and the one called Save Your Love. And that was Pick of the Pops. All rights? Right, stay bright. Fluff adored counting down the top 20 to Barbara Moore's arrangement. They still use it every weekend on Radio 2, although now it's my old chum from Kaleidoscope days, Paul Gambaccini, who counts down the chart. Barbara died at the end of last month, and to the best of my knowledge, the BBC has yet to mention her passing. We note it here because she was one of those musicians who improved everything she touched. This arrangement is tough to play. You need the very best musicians. So here it is from Brass Incorporated, conducted by Barbara Moore herself, but without anyone going, down to number seven, it's Duran Duran, all over it. Go, Barbara. Stay free. All right. Stay bright. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.